This is Worthlessly Worthwhile. What is your favorite quarantine activity? I'm going to say rollerblading. It's rollerblading and drinking. Now your hosts, Art and Rich. April 28th, Worthlessly Worthwhile. Uh, Rich Brown here with you, joined as always by Art Aronson and special guest host tonight, Caleb Kirby, joining the party. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, yo. Thanks for having me, Richie. All right, so we got to jump right in. Most important topic of the day, of course. Episodes three and four of The Last Dance came out, uh, well, for us, it was very early Monday morning. I got to it last night. Want to get your initial thoughts on where the series is at after four episodes and how episodes three and four stood alone as well. Art, what were your thoughts? Uh, Before I get into my thoughts on the two episodes, I want to ask either of you guys, did either of you have an issue with the timeline jumping? Because I've had a couple of friends text me and say they've had issues with it. And I've seen online as well. Some reporters, some sports people have had issues with the way it's jumping timelines from this year to the next. What do you, what do you guys thought of that? On that, I had no issue with the timeline jumping. I think it's telling the story beautifully, um, jumping between the different eras, and also at, at one point uh, for episode three, for instance, it's focused on Rodman, but then it kind of jumps back in time and starts telling the story about the Bulls versus the Pistons and how that all ties into Rodman's story while at the same time it's telling the story of the Bulls. So I quite enjoy the timeline jumping and I I don't know, maybe they're not smart enough to keep up the ones that are complaining, you know. Uh, I've seen a couple of of the writers that you're talking about and they say it was sloppily put together. Um, I think it's a fantastic series. I have no issue with it. I agree, man. I like, I, I don't understand how anybody could be complaining about the timeline. Like it well, actually, that's not true. If you if you didn't follow basketball back then, and you did what the Bulls had to overcome and what Jordan had to overcome to even get to like his his excellence, then maybe you'd have a bit of trouble with it. But I think overall, it's it's pretty easy. I agree. I had no issue at all with the timeline jumps. Um, I heard some little had to issue with the fact that. They like jumped in time the same, all the way back to 1998. I'm like, they did it purposefully because what they were doing was telling the story of each character in the dock. And to do that, you had to go back in time and realize what they meant to the Bulls dynasty from the beginning. Whether whether Phil Jackson was with the team or wasn't, when Scottie Pippen was drafted, when Dennis Rodman was a member of the Detroit Pistons, because that's like a huge part of this whole thing that. That he that Dennis Rodman was part of two dynasties, really. Uh, yeah, and and what a player that he was. And to me, it's it it's done perfectly. And uh, as soon as Dennis Rodman, we knew Dennis Rodman was going to be a part of the doc at some point. And it's it's just taken it to another level, just like we all expect. Because this guy is like a whole nother level of weirdness and celebrity. I I love it. I just want more Dennis Rodman is what I want. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I also think that um, it showed Pippen off really well, too. You know, like how Rodman used to just own Pippen. 
and uh, Pippen couldn't do anything about it. And then him getting into the weight room and him getting like mentally tougher to get through those guys that really helped it. The Phil Jackson stuff was really interesting too. Um, just how he ended up as head coach of the Bulls. Just when you grew up in our generation, you kind of always saw Phil Jackson as like a big figure. He, like Art mentioned, he was part of uh, the two dynasties with the Lakers one coming after. But uh, before he was head coach of the Bulls, he was really nothing. He was coaching in Puerto Rico, then was able to jump to a low-level league in the U.S. before landing the assistant job with the Bulls. But if it wasn't the Bulls taking that chance on him, I don't know that there were any other teams that were looking to hire him as the head coach at any point. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that Jerry Krause like, could see that, and they did a good job of uh, of that, that decision, because that decision was really tough. And MJ even said it, like, to, 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 to fire the head coach who was Doug Collins at the time to, you know, and a team that had lost in the Eastern Conference final, like was one game away from the finals to, to or I guess two games because they lost in game six of that, that year, uh, to, to go from him to an unknown in Phil Jackson. Like that's, that's pretty crazy. And the fact that it did finally pay dividends a few years later, it's, uh, that's a really interesting part of the doc that I think a lot of people didn't know about uh, about uh, the Bulls dynasty and Phil Jackson. XM is X's and O's too, man. Like breaking down the triangle offense and like how important that offense is to basketball and players working off a rotation to each other. And, you know, like showing the history of that going all the way back to Kansas. Like it's pretty cool. Like if you're a basketball fan to even just kind of see that drawn up, even if you're not to get an understanding of it. Yeah, it was really interesting to to watch him break it down, like you mentioned, and get the idea of how many different options each player is supposed to have at every moment and how that was supposed to open up other members of the Bulls. And I think it's really impressive as well that Michael Jordan, in the middle of his prime and winning scoring titles and MVPs, was willing to step back and, and give it a try and fully embrace it. And I know he did mention that when Phil Jackson first came in, he was a little bit hesitant, um, but he obviously bought into the system, which allowed other players to thrive around him. And, and in the end, it paid off with one of the greatest yeah. dynasties. Uh, what, what are your guys' like, favorite moments of the doc so far? Like We talked about our favorite moments in the last uh, Worthlessly Worse while Rich and I. Uh, mine was like, him going getting 63 against the Celtics and I just felt goosebumps you know seeing Michael like rise to that challenge even though he was going against one of the greatest teams in NBA history with basically nobody a a bunch of nobodies (laughs) trying to win that series and he couldn't but he's still like that 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 record 63 points is still an NBA playoff record uh in this next couple of seasons I think I think the one story that 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 uh, they told Michael t- told where he like went to Las Vegas and like chased down Rodman in the hotel room and Carmen Electra was in the room like how good is that story like that that was my favorite moment from the third episode for sure yeah I I think that was that was a really good part I thought uh, when Jordan was admitting like how Harper should have been guarding him you know <laughs> um, and he wouldn't have hit that shot to uh, take down the Cavs I thought that was pretty cool. And then they go to Harper, and he's just like, pocket, coach told me not to, so whatever. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, actually, I, I kind of forgot about that part. Uh, but I, I definitely got a good laugh out of it when he said it. Um, and like you mentioned, Kirby, like he basically was saying, you know, Ron guards me really tough and I struggle against him. And uh, I don't know who the coach of the Cavs was at that time, but uh, don't know that it worked out for him with that that coaching decision. Um, the Rodman story as well, like the way the third episode ends to lead into episode four, if that was the end of the fourth episode and we had to wait till next week, I wouldn't have made it. Like I had to watch the start of the fourth episode after how the third one ended with him talking about Rodman in Vegas um, and how he didn't come back on time, of course. But I also <laughs> found it very interesting how they embraced him. They understood that that's just Dennis being Dennis and they didn't try to force him to be someone he wasn't everything they did was about how can they get the most out of him on the court and I don't think something like that could even happen in today's age because of the social media presence around everything like if if there was a player if Dennis Rodman was playing today and he went to Vegas to blow off some steam there'd be videos and pictures all over Twitter all over uh, the internet and then the coaches and the players would have to answer the questions um, and then it would just become a huge distraction for the team. Yeah, I found it pretty funny too when Carmen Electra was like, "I hid under a bed sheet behind the couch because <laughs> I didn't want to like see Michael, um, see Michael like come in and interrupt this with me in here." She's so scared of Jordan. Everybody's just so scared of Jordan, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> Did you guys uh, read this week? She did an interview, and I, I'm not sure. I think it might have been with Esquire, and she made some really interesting comments about her and Dennis Rodman. Did you guys catch that? I saw them, oh. yeah. So, Kirby, if you missed it, she basically came out, and I think she had the quote in the... It was like... I think she had a quote in the doc where it was like, it was a real... It was really hazardous or something to be to be Dennis Rodman's girlfriend. Anyway, she like expands on that and she talks about how about how Dennis Rodman would like take her to the Bulls practice facility and they'd like bang on all the surface like everywhere in the weight room, on the court. Also like she like doesn't hold anything back in her comments. It's pretty pretty good, man. Pretty good stuff. <laughs> One of my oh. other favorite parts from the episode that uh, was just a very quick thing, but when uh, Rodman's walking through the hallways uh, around the locker rooms and Craig Sager walks past him and just really quickly slips him a $20 bill and says, hey, you know, Dennis, that's for the fine. <laughs> Craig Sager, yeah. nice cameo there for sure. Um. A, a big thing that I really liked about it too was that they they got interviews from you know quite a few of the Pistons in that time, and I kind of liked like how they were showing each other like clips from from interviews. So like when they were talking about um, you know how like the Pistons disrespected the Bulls in basketball by not shaking everybody's hand, you got to hear like Isaiah's side of the story, which Jordan just wanted nothing to do with. <laughs> Right. And then you hear Jordan's side of this story and you just kind of see like how, how they both were in, in contrast. And I mean, like, like I've always liked Isaiah Thomas. I still like Isaiah Thomas. And it's just like, it's so interesting to me, like 
how despised that team was in basketball. Like, I think they're the most despised team ever, you know, and, and, um, deservedly so, you know, with all the fouling and the dirty play and stuff that they did. But I was wondering if, if this documentary was going to go into talking about like that dream team snub that, that, Mm -hmm. uh, that happened to Isaiah, right? Because I mean, like, you know, magic was the good guy. Magic got respect from Jordan all those other teams with great superstar players got the nod from Jordan because they weren't as competitive. But I feel like, like I feel like Jordan and Isaiah don't get along because of how competitive they are with each other. They're kind of like, obviously Jordan's the better player, but they both wanted it that much. Right. And it's funny that they still have that rivalry that they still like, just like do not like each other. I a hundred percent agree. And I think that, that, yeah, I think, I think it's pretty clear that Isaiah didn't make the team because if you were going on skill alone uh, into that dream team, on that dream team, like he's the fifth, probably the fourth after Magic and Charles Barkley and at that time, Magic, Charles Barkley, Jordan, Larry Bird, who's like at the end of his career. But Isaiah Thomas would have been like, he should have been third or fourth guy taken, you know? Maybe, maybe, maybe after Scotty Pippen as well. So, but here I have some thoughts on Isaiah Thomas, and I I think they made it kind of clear in the Bad Boys documentary. If anybody hasn't seen that documentary, it's an ESPN ESPN thirty for thirty that came out a few years ago, and it it chronicles those Detroit Pistons and just how brutal they were and how like that team how that team was successful. And Isaiah Thomas is kind of like, and this is the analogy that I make with him. He's like the Carl Lewis. He like, he, he, he smiles in the background, but he's the guy who stirs the drink. And anybody who plays against the Pistons really knows that. Michael knows that. Like he's, he's, he's a huge reason why the Pistons were the bad boys, even though he is the smaller, quiet guy who smiles in the background, is a little unassuming, but he's really pulling all the strings. And I think it was so Isaiah Thomas when he like passes the buck off on Bill Lambeer uh, for the <laughs> for, for the walk off. Like, come on, Isaiah, you're the leader of this team. If if you if if you think that you should stay and shake everybody's hands like everybody else. Like, come on, that was such a half-assed excuse. And I think Michael hearing that again is the reason why we're going to have that Michael meme for, I don't know how, until the next Michael meme, you know, where he's just looking down at the, <laughs> looking down at the video and Isaiah's like, the way he, he saw it happening was, it's it's so good. And his reaction to that is so good. And that's why I think Isaiah wasn't on the dream team. Just because that right there, that whole the whole Michael just doesn't trust him, right? Well, it's not just Michael, though, man. Like, look at who the Pistons alienated through their, their entire playoff run, right? Like, they kicked the shit out of the Celtics. You know Larry Bird didn't like them. They mm-hmm. kicked the shit out of the, the Lakers to win championships. You know Johnson didn't like them. And then they disrespect Michael, right? So it's like your three most powerful heads in basketball are going to snub you from making that team. Chuck Daly was the head coach of the Pistons, man. Like that's crazy. Yeah, and he was the head coach of, and he was the head coach of the Dream Team. It's just, it's 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 really incredible, really. And a lot of people are talking about this. And maybe Rich, you can talk to this for a moment. 
just like that hatred. Like we don't see that in professional sports really anymore, right? Yeah, we need to see more of that, I think. Like even the Cavs and the Warriors played four straight finals against each other, but it never really felt like they hated each other. Maybe Draymond Green, uh, well, everyone hates Draymond. I think even his own teammates hate Draymond, but um, there just isn't that same level of hate in the league anymore. And I I think it's players changing teams and the social media generation and they're all buddy, buddy. And um, yeah, there, there just needs to be that sense of rivalry now. Like, don't you care about championships? And that's, that's where this rivalry stems from. Right. I think art, you said it right. They, they're both, ultra competitive they both want to win at any cost so when two players or two teams that have that attitude go up against each other of course they're going to hate each other it's uh for for us locally it's like the blackhawks canucks little rivalry there for a three-year four-year period because those teams just went at it in those series and they hated each other even even when Chicago mostly was coming out on top, they hated the Canucks, and and it's not always that way. Sometimes you only hate the team uh, if you're the one losing, and if you're winning, you don't see it as a rivalry. But I think in both these situations, like even the Pistons, before the Bulls had come to beat them, they probably hated the Bulls. There was something about the aura of Michael and the attention he gets and everything like that, right? So I would love to see that level of passion and hatred come back to the NBA, though. One more quick tidbit on that, too, is, like, Isaiah Thomas is from Chicago, you know? And if you're that good of a player and you're from from Chicago and you see a guy like Michael step into that city and become the god that he is, you're going to have a chip on your shoulder against that player. Like, like it's just going to be the way it is, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the reason reason I kind of compared him to Carl Lewis was just because you know, everybody was doing steroids and that famous uh, Ben Johnson, that run there. And everybody was asking Carl Lewis, you know, did you did you do the steroids? And he would just smile. Right. And that's the way I see Isaiah Thomas. Everybody's like, oh, the bad, bad boys. But Isaiah Thomas would be just smiling in the background, you know, even though he was the whole architect of the whole thing. Anyways, that was that's my analogy for for, uh, for Isaiah Thomas. But our one point I wanted to bring up when you mentioned uh, Daly being the coach of the Dream Team, I think it, it's a good point because obviously Isaiah is his guy and he doesn't win championships without Isaiah Thomas. But if if it comes down to it and, and he's trying to put his foot down and say, no, I've got to have Isaiah Thomas on this team and he's going up against Jordan. Sorry, but the Dream Team is just going to go out and get a new coach, I think. Like, Michael Jordan is the key player in that situation, and really he has final say. And if you try and go against Michael, I think he's going against, you know, at least three or four other superstars, you know, in in Bird and and Magic. Like, they were asked, like, that Pistons team was just as mean to them, too. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. That's a good point, and... There was a new sheriff in town, and he happened to be Michael Jordan, as you so, uh, as they so clearly put it. Anyways, it's 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 great stuff. Uh, that's that's two episodes uh, more for four, four episodes now. What are you guys uh, looking to I, see? I want to know episodes? more about Tony Kukoc now. Like that's where we're headed, right? And and Steve Kerr. I'm assuming those are like going to be the next two guys, provided the series continues to break down 
kind of one person's career uh, each episode as it goes on. Um, but those are two guys I'm obviously interested in. And Kerr seems like he was uh, a bit of a, not obviously not a central figure for that team, but he's much more central in the NBA now. So um, it'd be interesting to see how his place on the Bulls came to be. And even if it has anything in there about how it, it transformed his coaching or his vision of the game to play with a guy like Michael Jordan, because I think he he's very well spoken and uh, I'd like to see more from him breaking things down about how that team worked and, and what he's taken from them. Do you think it's going to go there though? I, I, I kind of get the feeling we're not going to go there. Like I, I like Kerr's already been in this documentary and Kerr, you know, like NBA champion on the bulls championship winning coach champion on the Spurs. Like there's a lot that he does have to offer, but I, I kind of feel like this documentary has got us up to speed of the bulls getting over the hump um, and winning an NBA championship with like the key pieces in, in Jackson, Rodman, uh, Pippen and Jordan. And I, I kind of feel like it's just going to go into like, like where we were at in, um, at the end of that Phil Jackson episode, you know, like them going after Stockton Malone um, and having parallels with their group as far as running through their other playoff runs and, and leading up to this final culmination of a season. I'd, I'd be uh, interested to see, you know, more more players profiled on that team, but I don't know if that's necessarily where it's going to go. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I kind of agree with Rich a little bit just because Steve Kerr, as we all know, with the benefit of hindsight, it's the game-winning shot in that season. Uh, Tony Kukoc is brought in by Jerry Krause. He's Jerry Krause's guy that was like supposed to replace Jordan and Pippen. And they took that like really personally, both those guys, as we saw in like the past documentary about the Dream Team and how Gretzky, or sorry, Gretzky, Pippen and uh, Jordan would like, you know, t- really went after Tony Kukoc at the Olympics. So uh, um, I, I, I get the feeling that we are going to hear a little bit more of the background of Kerr and Kukoc just because they are such big players. So I do kind of agree with with uh, Rich on that point, but they probably won't spend too much time in that. Yeah, and we're probably going to get right into the season, right? And we're going to hear about, you know, Carl Malone and John Stockton, who were two of the greatest players in the NBA at that point and just, you know, couldn't get over the hump because we have to hear from those guys, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be criminal not to have Stockton and Malone in this documentary. Yeah, it'd be something everyone wants to hear, obviously, um, because they were so close. And, yeah, it was it was just the team that they couldn't get past. It was – it's Jordan and Pippen. And when I, I think mentally, too, it's it's – they might have been the better team uh, going into it, but it's that mental block of, like, these guys have won – five out of six they beat us in the final last year so it's it's more than just what they do on the floor it's it's inside the the head between the years too is a big part of it and i'm sure they would say that uh jordan and pippen just had their number are you guys okay with how kraus is being portrayed in this documentary i am okay with it and i we said in the last worthlessly worthwhile i I think Michael has the best point that when a team 
is in the middle of a dynasty like that, you got to give this team to the end of the rope, right? When they lose, then it's over. You don't, you're not thinking ahead of that. That's why I, I feel like Kraus deserves a lot of the shit that he's getting. Personally, that's the way I feel. And you can't just like tell Phil Jackson that this is his last season and him telling everybody that this is his last season. It just, it just seems wrong. And I'm sure there are quotes out there that they aren't putting in. But those are the big sticking points for me. And I think because of, because of what he said to Phil Jackson... I'm okay. I'm okay with the way he's being portrayed. I think it's doing him justice. He's still getting a lot of credit for the moves that he made to build the team. He's getting the credit for finding Phil Jackson and for acquiring Scottie Pippen and taking the gamble to bring in Dennis Rodman. Um, he's getting that credit, but it's so true that you, you just don't take a team that's winning championships and and end it prematurely because you have to see how long are they going to keep this going how long can they keep winning do we even know if he hadn't gotten involved if he hadn't said uh to phil jackson this is your last year you know pippen would have been happier if he if he knew that he was going to get taken care of if he had just worked to keep that team together from the get-go do we not know that the bulls would not have won more than six titles maybe um we we don't have any way of knowing and if he had gotten his way, it sounds like he would have blown things up even earlier and they might have only got five. So it's just you you manage to win championships. Like that's the whole point. And you have a team that's able to do it. They know how to win too. They don't even need to be the most talented team because they have a winning pedigree. And that goes a long way in professional sports. The mental side of the game especially when a championship is on the line, is so important. And these guys were dominant. They were killers. So you you have to just let them keep going out there and see how long they win. And at, at some point, they're going to not win. And that's when you have to make a move. But the Bulls, it's not like... It's not like they couldn't have waited the year or two years to blow it up. They haven't won anything since. So obviously, the fans would have rather seen how long that team could have kept winning right yeah i agree with that i I, it's just it's just really interesting to me because i i just feel like when they were talking about cross a little bit earlier it it was always like a sidebar you know like they were like don't get me wrong he made some good moves to make this team happen but you know like his ego got in the way he had short man syndrome like uh you know jordan used to tease him all these guys were teasing him as he was putting this together and I was just like, man, like, don't get me wrong. Like, this guy, I don't know him as a human being or anything like that. But, you know, to have a dynasty that has lasted that long, is this guy, like, getting that fair of a shake for just what was happening? And, and maybe, like, if he was in it more to tell his side of the story, you know, would this documentary be a little more rounded, I think? Yeah, and we'll never know because he's dead, right? And so I I think that what can't be understated and maybe could have gotten a little more focus was he pulled off the greatest trade maybe in NBA history, Olden Polynes for Scottie Pippen, right? Yeah. So maybe that that could have been highlighted a little bit more. But it takes more than just that. It took Michael Jordan being Michael Jordan for this to work. So... 
Does he get credit for that? Not as much. So, anyways, I'm okay with that. And every every good story needs a villain, Rich and Kirby. You guys know that. And we got that in this doc. This doc has everything. It's got a villain. It's got mystery. It's got intrigue. It's got celebrity with Dennis Rodman. I just, I, I love it all. I love it, love it, love it. And I can't wait for more. Yeah, so we'll wait for next week when we get episodes five and six. So we'll get uh, past the halfway mark. But interesting to see what they come out with next week, how deep into the 98 season they get and how much more they cover of the previous year's um, but we will we will talk about episodes five and six next week after we've watched them. One last thing about this documentary, man, is like it left me like wishing that I could have seen Jordan play against Kobe in both of their primes. Like that that Lakers team, like that that Lakers team with Shaq and Kobe and all those guys grinding it out against like the Bulls in their prime. I would have. Like, just love to have seen the fireworks in that match because I honestly think it would have been similar. Like, just yeah. hatred. Yeah, I think, and I, and it's it's funny because you hear you hear you know Jordan crying at Kobe's funeral and and all that stuff and talk, talking about how he's the mentor to him and everything like that. And I believe all that's true, but like if they were going at each other at the same time, like I just feel like there would have been such bitterness there at at like like more so than this mentorship with with Kobe becoming the player and Jordan in the twilight of his career. Yeah, I don't I don't think there would have been maybe the Black Mom uh, you know, the Black Mamba without Michael Jordan though. And I think yeah. that's that's such a that's a, such a big point there with those two guys. Uh, and I know Shaq has been on record in the last week saying he thinks his Lakers would easily beat the Bulls. Uh, I I think it would be a really 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 good series, and it's it's hard it's hard to go, uh, you know, comparing players in different eras. But I know Shaq and or sorry, Kobe and Michael have even talked about it. Like, I think, and this is just the nerd in me. I think I, I would love to see the two thousand and five Kobe Bryant, two thousand five or two thousand and six Kobe Bryant versus the 1990 or 1991 Michael Jordan. I think that would just be insane. And I just know that that, cause that was right when Michael, like in his complete prime and Kobe in his complete prime. And they both have like that. They both still have the athleticism to be, you know, crazy on the court with all those highlights, but they, they have also the smarts, uh, to be a veteran in the league, I think 1991 Michael Jordan versus 2006 Kobe Bryant. I think that they're would just, be the greatest. They're just such competitors, right? Like they're they just both do whatever it takes. Like they they want it more, and and like I just like I turned it off and I was kind of sad, you know, like after after watching that Philip episode because I'm like, man, like it just sucks that Kobe's not even around to see this documentary. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. I think that's a really good point. I think at some point he will have an interview in this documentary because I remember when when the Last Dance was first announced last year and they were teasing it. There was talk that uh, Kobe had participated in oh, in the man. interviews, so I feel like at some point we're going to hear from Kobe in this documentary. Man, that's going to be a sad moment 
it's going to be great, but it's going to be sad. And especially with nothing else going on in the entire world watching this, the entire sports world watching this documentary, if uh, Kobe Bryant gets you know a good quote in the stock, they'll have won. They'll have won the year with this documentary if that happens, man. That'll be. It'll be good to see, but that was one of the first things I actually thought of when uh, it was announced that this was moved up is how close to Kobe's death it was and how I had heard that he was interviewed. So it was going to bring a somber tone to the to the documentary because um, otherwise it would have been just fascinating to hear his thoughts and it still will be, but there just is that tragedy that goes along with it now. Uh, but while all other sports are not really happening, the NBA, the only thing we have is the last dance. The NFL offseason just rolls right along. Uh, today's news was that it's official. Jameis Winston, former first overall draft pick, signing a one-year deal with the New Orleans Saints to be the backup quarterback to Drew Brees. So the big question there is, did they need to go out and get Jameis Winston um, There's a lot of talk that Taysom Hill was ready to step in as the, the backup quarterback, but obviously the Saints like him in that uh, utility role that they use him in, and they bring in Jameis Winston to replace Teddy Bridgewater. What are your thoughts on that, yeah. uh, Caleb? We'll start with you. Um, You know, like, after Brees got injured, you got to bring in somebody who's experienced, I think. And I, I also think it's ownership and somewhere else so I, I think it makes sense we kind of cut we kinda, you kind of got cut off a little bit there Kerr, but you said it makes sense i think it makes sense as well i like tayshawn hill like i don't know about you guys but that guy hasn't thrown enough passes to to be a starting quarterback for me i don't know he had a couple of good moments but he had good moments because nobody was expecting what he was going to do with the ball when you become the starter you know the the defense is key on key in on you, and they take away. You know they know what's they know more of what's coming. So it, there's no, no sneak attack, so to speak. So Winston, I also think it's kind of strategic bringing in Winston because you know you got Bruce Arians who he worked with a, the whole past year, and apparently those two guys were like really close, right? And for for all of Jameis Winston's knocks, he he's a really hard worker from what from what everybody said and. Bruce Arians has said as well. So I get the feeling it was kind of strategic to bring in Winston uh, to, to get an idea of what's going on in the head of Bruce Arians and what's going to go on in Tampa Bay because that Tampa Bay team, like, right now, they're looking like a bit of a juggernaut, I think. I don't know if you guys agree with that. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> juggernaut might be the exaggeration of the uh, the month so far that's for sure oh jeez. i do i do love me some bruce arians though i think he's got one of the most gifted offensive minds in the nfl yeah and what happens when you pair that gifted mind with the greatest of all time i mean i feel like there's a bit of a juggle well, going on there guys the thing is, are, they're either gonna gel or they're gonna butt right i think bruce is a pretty big personality and i mean obviously Tom's worked with a guy like that before, but uh, I'm going to wait and see what happens there. I'm not going to call that they're going to win the division. No, I'm it's not, too I'm tough a saying. division to to call the Bucks as as the team to beat. I think the Saints are still the the team to beat 
in that division, but the Bucks could definitely push them. Um, the Falcons had a pretty tough year, but I still think they're a pretty decent team as well. So I think it's a pretty good division. Panthers pretty much in, in a bit of a rebuild now, although uh, Bridgewater's a nice quarterback. They obviously have Christian McCaffrey, but they've lost some pieces, uh, some veteran pieces. So I think they're, they're kind of the bottom of the barrel in that division. But I think it's a really smart move for the Saints to bring in Winston. Um, the first thing is it bothers me to no end every uh national broadcast with the saints in it the the broadcasters just like continue on and on about how sean payton loves Taysom hill and he doesn't see him as just a runner he's a he's a good passer too and he sees him as a true quarterback and the quarterback of the future of the saints and I, i just have not been buying it and they had teddy already but the fact that he left and then they they replace him i think it it says everything it needs to say Taysom Hill is a, is a gadget quarterback. He's really good in that role, but he's not going to be the quarterback of the future of the saints. And you're looking at the final one, maybe two years of Drew Brees' career here. And you get the chance to bring in a former first overall draft pick who has shown some definite flashes of brilliance in the NFL. The only problem is that he makes a lot of mistakes, but he's still young and he still has lots of time to mature and now he gets to work behind Drew Brees. This will be the first time in his career that the pressure is off him and he can just take time to learn and not be going out and playing every week. And not only is he doing that, but he's he's playing behind one of the greatest. And I think Brees is the type of guy that will embrace the role as teacher for this young quarterback. So they may see it as Jameis Winston could be Drew Brees' replacement. And if he plays his cards right, he very well could be. I was just I, I was just going to put a finishing touch on saying that with Winston coming back in the division, it's clear that this is the most exciting division in football. Is it not? It's got I, really it has everything. I one hundred percent agree with that, and I think it's about time. Like the NFC South got a little bit of a look, man. Like there, there's been years where like they don't even get like national coverage on television unless you're watching a Saints game. I think we're going to see like a lot more eyes on this division this year. And I think with Jameis Winston, Rich made a really good point. He's in a position right now, which is like the first he's ever been in, and he doesn't have the pressure to be a a big-time starter. He can sit back and he he can learn a few things from one of the best to ever lace him up, and he gets to play in a dome for over half the season. Good point. Uh, This begs the question, guys. Where's Cam Newton going? If anywhere. Is anyone going to pick him up? Someone's <laughs> got to sign him. Um, but I, I'm still waiting. Why has New Orleans not signed him yet? Sorry, New England. You mean New England? Yes, New England. Yeah, why is New England not signed? Because I think Bill Belichick's on a crusade this year. He's on a crusade to show that he can win with any quarterback. I, I truly believe that. He's on that run right now. Didn't take a quarterback in the draft. He's going with the... Third, the third round pick that he made a couple of years ago, or fourth round pick, who has thrown like one pass in the preseason. Um, I think he, I think he's on a crusade to show that he can win without Tom Brady. So I saw today on Twitter, and it was showing the teams with the least amount of salary cap space remaining following the draft. The Patriots have the least amount of cap space remaining right now at just over a million dollars. 
Who are they spending their money on? I don't understand. Where is their money going that they have the least cap space in the NFL right now? I think they have a lot of dead cap space with uh, Tom Brady. Uh, I don't know if you guys know how dead cap space works in the NFL. It's a little bit confusing. But they also, like, they have a lot of money tied up in that defense, that Stephon Gilmore, um, in uh, McCourty, Slater, uh, the running game. Like, they got a lot of money tied up in James White and uh, Burkhead and stuff like that. So, yeah. but yeah, it's 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 a little bit strange that they have the least amount of cap space for for a guy that is supposed to be so cheap in Bill Belichick, right? Yeah, yeah. So it would take someone. Well, obviously they can make cuts, they can make trades. Um, other than that, they need to rework some contracts probably if they have any chance of signing Cam Newton. So that's probably not a likely landing spot for him. I, I thought the Bears was going to be the team. Obviously, it's not the Bears. Um, could it be Washington back with Ron Rivera? I don't think so. Uh, after they traded for Kyle Allen, another former Carolina quarterback. So I don't know where he fits right now. Um, unless he's willing to really come in and be a backup quarterback. And if so, I think a team like Arizona might be a good fit to have him come in and work with Kyler Murray, who they're expecting to take a big bump. And, and speaking about Kyler Murray art, I have to say, I, Maybe I'm a bit of a homer, but I think the NFC West is more interesting than the NFC South. Are you serious? You've got the defending Super Bowl champion. The Seahawks are always a good team, so that rivalry is hot. You've got the Sean McVay offense, and then you've got Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury coming up. You've got four really good teams in that division. I think it's a little bit more interesting. Although, of course, Tom Brady spices up the NFC South. And Rob Gronkowski now, like it's it's I, I I get it. I think the better teams might be in that NFC West for sure. But just all of the intrigue with Brady and Gronk going there, and uh, of course Jameis Winston sticking around, and the Saints being so good, uh, it's 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 an interesting division. But I, I I get your point by saying that the NFC West is you know because it is it's maybe the best division in football. The thing about the NFC South is the the worst team always ends up winning the game. So should we expect <laughs> that Carolina is going to do extremely well in the NFC South this year? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. Like the the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, I don't think they're going to be a juggernaut, but I do think they'll be a piece of business in that division, man. I, I could see two teams making the playoffs out of that division pretty easily. Well, especially with like the who? new format, too. I think Tampa Bay yeah. is pretty much locked in with that extra spot up for grabs now. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at their offensive talent, without Brady, without Gronk, they have a lot. And they had one of the best defenses in the NFL last year. I mean, their their uh, their, or their their pass defense wasn't as good, but their run defense was really good. And they did some, they did some work to shore up their, their uh, secondary this offseason. They're going for it. And that's just another reason why I think they're so interesting. And the fact that Arians and Brady, that whole dynamic is very interesting. So, I don't know. It's it's uh, I, I could see either way with those two divisions there. Rich. Okay, let's, let's talk about the draft, though, uh, while we're on the topic of quarterbacks moving around. Because there was a lot of quarterback activity, as always, in the first round of the draft. And I want your thoughts. 
So first off, I think it was no brainer that Joe Burrow was going to go number one to the Bengals. And I think the interesting story that came out about this is how there had been a lot of talk in the media that Joe Burrow was noncommittal. And when he was being asked questions about going number one to the Bengals. So there was a lot of thought that he didn't want to play in Cincinnati. He was trying to force a trade. Uh, Things were happening in the background that we weren't seeing, but really that Joe Burrow did not want to go to the Bengals. Uh, The story that I heard uh, just a couple days after the draft is that Joe Burrow has apparently been studying the Bengals offense for a couple of months already. He basically already knew he was going number one. He knew the Bengals were going to keep the pick for the most part. Um, So he's been studying the offense. And the funny part about it is that that story also said that it means he's ready to compete to be the, the starter in Cincinnati Mm. Uh, I'm sorry I think I think you pick a guy number one overall to start I'm I'm sorry Andy Dalton I I think your run is over but Joe Burrow is starting there um but is this just uh, an example of the media always overreading things and overthinking things yeah I think everybody gets a little hot and horny during NFL draft time right you start to go really really hard about whether guys are going to be like breakthrough players and be unreal in their first year. And like, I, I agree with you, Rich, a guy getting picked first overall probably should be starting in his first year. That's what you hope. Right. But you know, you hear it every single year when guys get picked high and not not everybody can step up to the plate and do it. At least play competently. You know who he's compared to? Guess what his his draft comparison was. Tom Peyton Manning. Yeah. Peyton Manning. That was that was who he's compared to. So I mean, he's just got a little bit to uh, to live up to. That's all. And I'm just, I'm interested to see what happens with AJ Green. Like, who is he gonna? Who is who is Joe Burrow gonna play with? Like, they got Joe Mixon, who's a pretty nice back, but they really don't have much else. That they drafted um, T Higgins. I think the guy's name is. They drafted him a wide receiver. Yeah. So he's expected to join Green, be a bit of a weapon for him. Yeah. Anyways, see, yeah, I just I, that team's not going to be good, and unfortunately for Burrow, he's not really going. And that's that's another reason why I think quarterbacks like you see a lot of quarterbacks, you see a lot of drama with quarterbacks about to be taken first overall because in the, for the most part they're going to a shitty shitty spot. It's you know like it's. It's it's just the way it is. That's how the draft works. You know, the worst team gets to pick first. So that's why you see some of that drama there with quarterbacks going first overall. And then you hear all about it afterwards, whether he should be the starter or who he shouldn't be. He's going to be the starter. Sorry, Andy Dalton. Your time is over. Why the hell would you want to go to Cincinnati? <laughs> I heard the chili is good. <laughs> What about the Dolphins, though? There was also a lot of pre-draft talk that the Dolphins had to go up if they wanted to get the quarterback because someone was going to jump them. There was just a lot of conversation that someone was going to jump the Dolphins to take Tua or potentially Herbert uh, because it was kind of flip-flopping on who was going to be the second quarterback drafted. So I thought they did really well to stay where they were. They did throw some smoke screens out there in the final few days leading into the draft. I don't know if that influenced anything. As well with the virtual draft, uh, there wasn't a lot of trades unless your name was John Lynch. So they did good to stay at number five and get their quarterback in Tua. Um, But I know there's the health concerns. Art, you've brought it up. 
is is two of the answer for Miami? Have they finally found their quarterback for the first time since Dan Marino? Man, I was just listening to like Trent Dilfer and uh, who's the uh, Jesse Palmer, and they're just raving about Tua Tonga Viola and his quick release and everything like that. And I watched this guy, like I watched Alabama football, and I saw him win his first uh, his first national championship for that team coming in for Jalen Hurts, and I was. He was an exciting, exciting player, but for whatever reason, and I said this on this Worthlessly Worthwhile podcast a couple of times now, I don't think he's the answer. I don't think he's he's going to be a star. I don't. I just don't see his game translating. And maybe it's maybe it's that left-handed throw that he has. I, I don't know what it is, but I, I I I think I think the fact that they they didn't have to move anywhere to get him they stayed there at that five pick yes that's a big win in itself because they were under a lot of pressure to get him so the fact that they were able to get him with that pick and they need a quarterback so brian flores is starting to build something in miami so on that standpoint i think he was the right pick and he's worth the risk because they really need that franchise quarterback but if i'm just looking straight at the player I don't think he's a star. And that's just like a gut instinct. And I mean, I could be wrong. I'm not wrong that often, right, Curb? So I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, who do you think is better, him or Herb? I would I, I, I think Herbert's kind of boring to be honest with you. That's why I thought it was the right pick. So that's just me. So Herbert goes number six to the Chargers. Word came out recently that the Chargers would have been happy with either quarterback. They were confident in either. If Herbert went five, they would have taken Tua. They would have been happy. Um, the thing I think about Herbert, I haven't watched a lot of him play, but everyone knows that he's known for the big arm. And generally, when you're the big arm quarterback in the draft, it does not translate to a, a good NFL career. If you're looking at the like the big arm quarterbacks, and that's what they're known for, the best that we've seen might be Joe Flacco, and that's not <laughs> impressive. Joe Flacco was lucky to win a Super Bowl because well, well, he was playing with one of the best teams. Stafford, you're right. You're right, Curry. Matthew Stafford. Stafford's a good player. Um, but I think Stafford was more known. Of course, he's known for having a big arm, but he was known for having an all-around game and for, for thinking the game well. Like, a lot of the guys who go first overall, like Stafford, have big arms, but they have all the tools. It just feels like Herbert is one of those guys that it's like the reason he's there is just because he has the big arm. That's why he's in a yeah. first-round position. Okay, that's a good distinction to make, Rich. The fact that what is Justin Her what is Herbert known for? His arm. That's it, right? So Matt Stafford, who was he was either the first or second pick. He was anyway, first. He was known. Yeah, he was first. He was known for his all-around game, whereas. Herbert's just known for a big arm. I think that's the point you're trying to make, and I think yeah. that's that's true. I, I just think he's boring. I, I don't I don't see a whole lot outside of that big arm. So that's why I think I would go to a tongue of Loyola. So, um, but I still, like I said, I wasn't a huge fan of this quarterback class altogether, honestly. And neither was Bill Belichick. Obviously, he didn't take a sniff. Everybody talked about him moving up to get a quarterback he didn't he knew better than that so. hey this isn't a, a pats fan podcast where you get to get in your soapbox and uh protect bill belichick okay we're, we're trying to talk about the chargers and, and the dolphins here hey listen rich brown uh 
Bill Belichick wasn't making the picks for the Packers or for the for the for the Patriots. It was his dog was making the picks. Just yes. so you know, yeah. That really was the moment of the draft when I want to know the thing I want to know about that is was Belichick just messing with everyone and that's why he put the dog in his chair and then left the room. Like I I don't know if he would punk everyone like that, but otherwise it's just a it funny was a big, coincidence. It was a big fu. It was just a. Yeah, my my dog could draft better than the rest of you guys. That's that's what it was. <laughs> but he's on a crusade. He's on a crusade right now, guys. But moving on with the quarterbacks, <laughs> what the hell are the Packers doing? Oh, here we go. Yeah, this is what I want to talk about. This was the shock of the draft when when they announced Jordan Love as their pick. Like, my jaw dropped to the floor. I was absolutely shocked. I couldn't believe it. There were still wide receivers available. They're desperate to get some extra skill players in there to help Rodgers. Rodgers is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, one of the most talented the league has ever seen. He's still, he's starting to get to the end of his prime, but he's still in his prime. They're coming off their first year with Matt LaFleur as head coach. They went to the NFC Championship game. They had a good season. They just need to add some extra pieces for Rodgers, and I think they're a true uh, contender, and they go out and they draft a quarterback. They trade up to draft a quarterback in the first round. I can't even imagine being around Aaron Rodgers when that pick happened because I was angry, and I'm not even a Packers fan. Dude, the cheese is rotten in Denver right now. Like, obviously, if you're drafting a quarterback that high, you know, LaFleur, like, is is Rodgers going to be LaFleur's guy? Or does he want somebody new? Does he want to just wipe this whole thing off the board and start fresh? You know? And <sighs> if, if, you could, if you could pull a trade for Aaron Rodgers, what other team wouldn't want to make a trade for that guy? You know? Oh. And then you got to ask yourself, too, like, are you drafting Love at that point because you thought he was the best player on the board, right? Like, I think it's a strategic move by the Packers. I'm not saying it's going to pay off for them, but they thought he was the best player on the board. But they yeah. traded up like, to get him. Yeah. They traded up for the best player on the board. Guys, like, so the Packers' two best players last year Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Jones, quarterback, running back. First two players that the Packers took in the draft this year, quarterback, running quarterback. back. Like, I don't know about you, but I think Aaron <laughs> Rodgers is fucking throwing things. He still is right now. He's got to be livid. And I don't think you can even trade him yet unless he demands it, but... Most people don't think Jordan Love is ready to play yet. He needs, like, I understand the thought process for the future of the franchise is that this is a quarterback with a lot of potential, but he needs time. And what better way, the same way Aaron Rodgers learned, you draft him late in the first round, you bring him behind your franchise quarterback, and he learns his way. And in a few years down the line, he becomes the franchise quarterback. Um, But when you have a team that has holes but is building and is coming off its best season in a while. You know, the Packers are always in the mix, but they haven't really been a threat to win a Super Bowl in a while. And they did have a really strong season. 
They made it to the NFC Championship game. They're coming off that momentum, and they have an opportunity to add to their squad in the place they selected. They didn't have to trade up. They could have just waited and drafted where they did. I think Love still would have been available, but even if he wasn't, then at least you're not giving up extra draft capital to go up and get a backup quarterback. And if they if they felt like there was a big disparity and Love was the best player available, they should have been looking for a way to trade down then and get more draft equity because this is a team that needs that extra little push. And all they added, as you mentioned, Art, in their first two rounds, they added a backup quarterback and a third string running back because they have Jamal Williams at running back as well. So even if it's good picks for the future, you have a team ready to win now. This goes back to what we talked about with Jerry Krause. You have to take the shot when you have a team ready to win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but the Packers, the Packers aren't ready to win. They're not they ready to win. They didn't win the Super Bowl last season. They didn't win the Super Bowl the season before. They're not ready to win. They have a good quarterback. I agree. But they're not the Bulls. Like, and 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 I think one thing about Green Bay specifically, is that like history has shown us that they keep their coaches around for a long time. You know, they keep their guys that they're ready to groom and 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 ready to stock personnel around to build and to build something big. They keep those pieces there for a while. So I think this is I think this is his team that he's starting to build. And Aaron Rodgers will probably stick around, you know, for next season or the season after that. But eventually. Who knows what's going to happen there? Yeah, but you're you're acting like they're chopped liver. Like they won 13 games last season. Curb. Like they. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying they're chopped liver. I just don't think that they're championship material. They were one game away from the Super Bowl. I I just I think that uh, they they needed a piece here and there, and drafting the next year, not going for it, was very Jerry Krause of them. <laughs> Do you think if they went and played Baltimore, they wouldn't get waxed? Well, Baltimore couldn't even beat Tennessee. I'm just so, saying. I'm just. I think. I think the AFC was was the better division as far as some of those teams in there. And I don't think Green Bay. I thought Green Bay was a pretender last season. Wow. All right. Fair enough. All right. They just. They were in a very tough division there in the NFC North. Like pretty. Like a meat grinder there. Detroit was like hit and miss, of course. But Minnesota and Chicago were they were tough teams to play against. And the Packers held their own real well in, the, in that division. So I thought I didn't think they were a pretender. And every, anytime you have Aaron Rodgers on your team, you're not a pretender in my eyes. So um, and it was really funny, like going toward going up to the draft. Rodgers was interviewed. and He was like, yeah, we've never taken a first round pick on a skilled player since I've been here. And uh, it'd be really nice. It'd be really nice if they took a if they took a first a skill player with the first overall pick. Well, well, they did. So, and it's really ironic because Brett Favre. This was the same. Aaron, Aaron Rodgers is the same age that Brett Brett Favre was when they took a quarterback in the first round, which happened to be Aaron Rodgers, right? So it's yeah. really it, it's really ironic. It is the blueprint. The blueprint is there for that, I think. Well. Andrew Brandt, who I believe works for the NFL Network, but he he worked for the Packers when they made that move to draft Aaron Rodgers. Um, and he was defending this 
this draft pick a lot on Twitter. Uh, but one thing he did point out when it first happened is that the main difference between that instance and this instance is that Brett Favre had already expressed a potential desire to retire at that point in his career. So they knew the clock was ticking and they did feel like he may retire very soon because he's talked about it and we need to have a, a replacement. I don't think Aaron Rodgers has any intention of retiring anytime soon. I see him playing a minimum of five more years. Um, he's still very much at the top of his game, I think. And he's kind of been robbed of of Super Bowls or Super Bowl appearances because the team around him just hasn't been good enough. Um, and I think it's interesting. He has had weapons. Like, I, I don't want to say that the Packers have drafted poorly because they've done a really good job of finding wide receivers in the second or third round. But I saw a stat come up today, and it was the top 10 all-time passing touchdown leaders in the NFL and how many of their touchdown passes were thrown to first-round draft picks. So Peyton Manning had 293 touchdown passes to first-round draft picks. He leads the way. Aaron Rodgers (laughs) has one. He threw one touchdown to Mercedes Lewis, and that's the only first-round pick he's thrown a touchdown to. So I can totally see how he was thinking – the Packers need a lot of help at wide receiver right now. They are a team that really needs help at wide receiver. And they they had the opportunity in the first round. But it was a deep draft for wide receiver. So even if they didn't take him in the first round, maybe they could have taken a guy in the second round or the third round. They did not draft a wide receiver in what's considered to be one of the deepest wide receiver drafts in a long time. And they're a team that really has a need at wide receiver. So I would be not just pissed about the Jordan Love pick, but the entire draft as a whole. All I hear with that, Rich, is that Aaron Rodgers can't get anything out of first-round draft picks. (laughs) 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 I'm just kidding, obviously. But By the way, I think all of Tom Brady's first-round draft pick throws were were to guys that they picked off of the scrap heap, right? It wasn't first-round picks that the Patriots made. It was just guys that they got from other teams that were first-round draft picks. Yeah, right? Was Gronk not a first-runner? Got players like Randy Moss, you know. Yeah, he was a cast-off, man, a fourth-round pick. Uh, <laughs> Rob Gronkowski was a – I think he was a third-round pick. Sec- he was either a second or maybe- – he fell in the draft, I think, because of, uh, because of uh, his back injury, right? Well, Brady's at 105 touchdown passes to first-round picks, just for the uh, the record. Mm. Okay, that's good. Anyways, I, it's it's just yeah. Go ahead, Art. Sorry, I was just just talking about Aaron Rodgers. I, I I'm I'm interested to see like where his career goes, like because he's considered one of the greatest talents to ever play a game of football, right? And he only has one. Super Bowl like it is this going to go down as Aaron Rodgers couldn't get over the hump or is this because Aaron Rodgers was failed because of everybody around him because the Packers organization failed him I'm just wondering what the narrative is going to be at the end of his career I think he won one so he's not going to be the guy that never got over the the hump he's not Dan Marino he at least won one um and I think Aaron Rodgers escapes a lot of the criticism I do think people will look at it. If he doesn't win another, I think people will look at it as uh, not his fault that he only won one. 
they will look at it as the team was not good enough around him. If he had not won the one, things might be looked at differently because when you have zero compared to one, it, it does change the narrative in a big way of, of you could never get the job done. There was something that you just couldn't get over that hump. He's won it, so it, it does look a little different with, well, the team around him wasn't good enough, and that's why he only won the one. Um, but in terms of where his career will go, here's a, here's a scenario. Um, what if Sam Darnold has a bad season? And then Aaron Rodgers ends up going to the Jets. Could happen, right? Exact same thing. He goes to the the footsteps. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a couple more years. No, all the the point I was just trying to make was that he shows his nickel to a sports reporter. Let's hope he doesn't go down that road. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Jen Sturger. Uh, I, I, I wanted to, I, the only thing point I was trying to make about Aaron Rodgers is I think people expect a lot more from his career than what we've gotten so far in terms of championships. That's all I was saying. Um, but besides quarterbacks, a lot of wide receivers went in the first round as well. We talked about that. So uh, some the, the big three went to the Cowboys with CeeDee Lamb. Uh, Vegas got Riggs and Jerry Judy went to the Broncos. So um, I think all three of those teams could use a wide receiver. But I think the Cowboys was the biggest shock because they, I guess they're a pretty deep team, but they do already have Amari Cooper. So to, to use that high of a first round draft pick on CeeDee Lamb was a bit of a surprise. Yeah, it was that. I think a lot of people thought maybe they were going to go quarterback, you know, because how invested are they in with Dak Prescott? So there was a lot of intrigue going into that pick. And for them to pick a wide receiver is is quite interesting. And, uh, you know, Jerry Jones in isolation making rash decisions doesn't shock me. But everything I've heard about this guy, and I don't know a whole lot because I I, I haven't been really deep into college football as I have been in the past just been too busy but uh from everything I've heard like this guy's a real stud coming out of Oklahoma yeah it sounds like he he's got a lot of skills as well as I think all three of those guys were considered any of them could have been the first wide receiver taken it it's as I mentioned one of the deepest wide receiver drafts but also very top heady uh heavy so I think all three teams did well to get these guys, but we're going to see, are all three of them going to pan out? The guy I have questions around is uh, Riggs, mainly because, again, he's one of those guys, he's smaller, known for his speed. I think it's Ruggs. Sorry, Henry Ruggs. Ruggs, sorry, Ruggs, thank you. Um, Ruggs the third, right? So. He's he's super fast, and he's compared to like a Tyreek Hill, but just because you're fast, can you be like Tyreek Hill? I don't know. We're going to find out if, if he can make it happen. Rugs was it, I believe, right? Yeah. Um, I trust Gruden making the call on there. I think he, 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 he knows what he's doing. He knows how he's going to fit into that offense, and he needs weapons for Carr, man. I think they took, they took like, tons of wide receivers. They ended, up, they ended up with three when it was all said and done. And, uh... That's what they need. Like, Vegas needs those kind of guys to catch the ball. You know, funny that we're talking about Amari Cooper because, like, that guy wasn't 
doing that. He wasn't catching enough, and he he, he has a lot of drop passes. He's got all the tools from the drops he has. is pretty bad. Yeah, um, I, it's uh, and also a good point to be made there, Curb, is that this is Vegas. Like, it's showtime now. Like, they need the yeah. receivers, right? That's part of it. That's part of what Gruden is going to sell. So that makes total sense that they went after guys that can run really fast and catch the ball. The Broncos did something similar uh, for Drew Locke. They drafted a lot of offensive players. I, I think a few wide receivers. They drafted... Um, Locke's former college tight end they drafted him I think in the second round or at least with their second pick so they're doing the same thing they're trying to provide Drew Locke with as many weapons as possible difference being that Locke is a young quarterback that they're trying to isolate with some some good players around him to throw to Um, I think Vegas there's a few reasons why they went down that route Um, I think they have a pretty good team overall the defense is was they spent a lot of resources on the defense last year, so it's time to load up the offense. But also you go to Vegas, uh, new city, new stadium. You want to be the exciting team in town, even if you're not going to, you know, obviously you have to win, you have to compete. But even if they're not going to be a Super Bowl contender, you have to at least be exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think Denver did a good job. You know, in a couple of years is, is going to be, fun to watch again because you know like you got KC still and then uh, these other teams are starting to load up a little bit could be an interesting division in the next couple of years for sure I like Locke man he, like, he, he looked pretty good towards the end of the last season I thought let's see if he can build on it yeah I'm not sold yet on Locke but yeah maybe, maybe, maybe he's the guy eh Better than Joe Flacco. Yeah. It's not difficult. Yeah. But how about um, the <laughs> Eagles drafting a- Jalen Hurts? I thought that was a really smart pick because it was later in the draft. Um, obviously, Carson Wentz is not nearly as old as, as Aaron Rodgers, but it was a bit of a surprise for people that they drafted Jalen Hurts. But I think it's already shown to prove valuable to the Eagles to have a good backup quarterback and Carson Wentz has had uh, a history of injuries. So getting a guy like Jalen Hurts to come in is is probably a smart move, and I thought they got good value on him. Yeah, and I think, and I, I mentioned to you during the draft, Rich, that I think having that other quarterback to, and I think Doug Peterson, like he's, 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 uh, he, he's, uh, he's innovative, right? And I think having a quarterback that can run, that's one of the, uh, that's just another element to the offense. And I think Taysom Hill brings that for the the Saints. And I think uh, Hertz is going to bring that for the Eagles. And the, the big sad news out of the world of the NFL, or the NFL family at least, is that uh, Jay Cutler and Christian Cavallari are going to divorce after a decade of marriage and <laughs> seasons of very Cavallari. So very How sad How did you not lead news. with this, Rich? Uh, it didn't How quite did make it into the that? top hour of the show. <laughs> yeah, Cutler just probably held on to the ball too long in that marriage as well. <laughs> uh, can we get Jay Cutler back in the NFL, though, in some way? Like, get him in the broadcast booth. Get him get him as part of the studio and out 
analyst or something, be a studio analyst. Just let's get him back in there because I think he's hilarious. And he showed it in the very Cavallari show. And if anybody hasn't seen that show, they're really missing out because Jay Cutler's a real, he's a real talent behind the mic. Speaking of, of trashy reality television art, now I find out you watch very Cavallari, but uh, you mentioned to me the other day that you binged on Netflix uh, too hot to handle the the Netflix dating show. How did this happen? You're you're not the type to watch this kind of television. T H T H guys, that's uh, that's what I'm calling. It's too hot to handle. It's uh, it, it's just it, one night I'm sitting there and I'm just like, here I am in quarantine. Uh, I. I, I I report on hard news all day. I want to watch something, something I don't care about. And the premise of the show is so goddamn stupid. And but it 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 has a lot of hot girls in it. It has a lot of hot people in it. So I watched it, and I watched two episodes, and I'm like, God damn it! I want to know what happens. So I I I binged that bad boy. I couldn't get back to sleep. I binged so it's only eight episodes, guys. And these people are so Did you dumb. Watch it with your pants on or off. I was maybe wearing shorts, killed if you have to ask. <laughs> Loose fitting, probably. <laughs> Guys, this is the trashiest show. That. Yeah, this is the trashiest show ever created, guys. And there's a there's a there's a chick from Vancouver, who's like the main character, who is just the worst person ever. But she's also like smoking hot. Like just, she's just some kind of special. She's a special person, and it's just it's worth it just to watch for her and her like really dumbass like guy that she attaches herself to. And if you don't know that, you don't know the premise of this show. Basically, it's ten people who know they're going on a reality show to a destination resort. They don't know why they're there. Um, these 10 people are like very good looking people and they're into like hookup culture. Like they, they're like the biggest players in their city or, or wherever they're from. Right. And they're from all over the world. And anyway, they finally learn when they get there that they're not allowed to have any sexual contact. So no touching, no inappropriate, no, in, no kissing, no sex, obviously. And they have, they have to be there for a couple of weeks and there's like a prize. There's like a prize plot. And every time they do something inappropriate, money comes out of that pot. And it's like they're filmed 24-7, so there's like night vision, you know, night vision cameras and stuff. And it's just these people are so dumb, too. And it's just it's I, I just couldn't keep my eyes off of it. It's so bad, but it was so good at the same time. The executive whose job it is to come up with ideas for reality dating shows has the easiest job if this somehow sticks, and I've heard that this show is very popular, <laughs> this is a very simple idea. It I would is. like this job. I've gone into the wrong, the wrong industry, obviously, because I should have gone into reality TV programming. It's just ridiculous. Um, I don't, I don't know how people are into this, but Art, you loved it. So, what was the, what was the trashiest moment? on the whole series as you binged it in one weekend i'd like to point out oh man there was this like i guess so francesca is like the 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 chick i'm talking about who's from vancouver bc she like 
she immediately latches on to this guy named Harry who's from Australia. And she, like, falls in love with him in, like, the first episode, first two episodes. And they're, like, losing money like crazy or whatever. They're doing stupid shit. And then she, like, for whatever reason, Harry does something stupid because he's an idiot. He just he says stupid things. And she, like, tries to make him jealous by going after this other guy, this guy named Kells, who has no no personality, even less personality than Harry. And and it, it was like, and, and Kells like, was like all up in it, even though everybody could see what she was doing, the manipulative bitch that Francesca is. Like, it was such a stupid moment in the show, and it lasted for like a quarter of an episode. And it was just like, what are you doing, Kells? Like, you're dumb. We feel real bad for you already. But like, come on, everybody could see this but you. So that was probably my favorite moment. Okay, I got a couple questions about the show. Because I'm actually a little intrigued. I think yeah. it's hilarious that they have a pot, and every time they hook up or do anything, they lose money. How much money are we talking about? Was the overall pot worth at the start, and how great. much money do they lose for like hookups? Great, great question. So there's a hundred thousand dollars in the pot, and they don't know how it's going to be distributed to one person, to two people, to all of them, but. They, they find out, like, the first, like, makeout session that someone has, they lose, like, $2,000 for that makeout session. So if it's, like, a split pot thing, they're all doing, and none of these guys can do math, but I was doing the math <laughs> in my head. I was like, wow, if they split it between 10 people, like, they're not making much money out of this at all if it goes down to, you know, maybe they're making a couple of hundred bucks each if it goes down to 20 grand or whatever it is, right? Uh, because these people are losing money left and right. They're just they're just stupid. So yeah, a hundred thousand, but they don't know how it's gonna be split up. So there's that intrigue as well. And it's guys, they're like put into this room at night and they're like sharing double beds. There's ten people in this one room that's like not that big, even though it's like this huge resort, and they have to share these double beds. So and oh, here's another point in the in the in the reality show, guys, nobody's allowed to masturbate either. They get point. They get. They get. They get money off for, for rubbing one out. And how long do they have to be on this island? Oh, days, man. Like weeks. I think it's two weeks or something like that. Well, that is quite cruel, the premise. Man. <laughs> it's cruel and unusual punishment for these like really good-looking yeah. people, right? Yeah. So the question yeah, so I have funny. though is does this show work if the contestants know the premise going in? Because how do you have, it's been very successful, how do you have a season two without the contestants knowing about it? That's going to be the tricky uh, good. part. Well, you get people that are really dumb to sign up, actually. And Sounds like that's these what people, they've already done. Yeah, so just, you got to find, you got to find another 10 people who are dumb as hell. And quite frankly, I'm sure the world is uh, full of these people. Well, have, we I got, sold, uh, have I sold it for you guys? Have yeah. I sold it for you guys? Actually, you basically convinced kind of me. <laughs> I'm kind of interested now. I'm just adding it Caleb to my Kirby. Netflix list right now. <laughs> Caleb Kirby's going to crush it tonight. I could feel it. I thought, well, I thought it was just like a crap. Like, don't get me wrong. This sounds like crap still. But it I is. thought it was like just like a, like a Love Island or like one of those ones. You know, like I didn't think it was like as shrewd as it is as 
like pulling money out of the pot every time someone touches somebody else. I think that's hilarious. Guys, so, and it's it's there's something to be said for like so single people right now with this with with all these social distancing rules, like people can't go out and get laid right now, single people. It's really tough on single people. So to watch a group of really good looking people not being able to have sexual contact with each other in that destination. There's something satisfying about it, guys. Yeah. It's yeah, the uh, the vindicate. content that the quarantine world needed. <laughs> yes. Well, we've we've covered a lot of ground on this podcast. We started with the last dance. We talked about the NFL, and we ended things off with too hot to handle. <laughs> this is what worthlessly worthwhile is all about. Uh, but we've we've run out of time for this episode, so we'll have to find another trashy TV show to break down next week. Thanks for joining me, gentlemen. Thank you, Richie. Thanks, Rich. This has been Worthlessly Worthwhile. Thanks for listening. <laughs>